Okay, so tonight we're going to be in Job chapter 14 is where we're going to pick it up. And as we continue through the book of Job, I felt like Jeff's prayer was very appropriate for going through the book of Job. And to me, like, there's, even though he's dealing with, you know, testings, trials, tribulations, and tragedy, there really is a very triumphant story, a triumphant ending over this story of Job. And there's a lot to rejoice in as we see how the Lord did prove himself faithful to him and brought him through these things, these events that he's been going through. If you recall, in there in the heavenly scene, God said that Job was his faithful servant, a just and upright man. And so we know right away he's a good man, and there's not really any obvious sin in his life, and God is bragging on him. We know that the devil has set out to destroy him and has taken his family, taken his finances, and even taken his good health from him. So he's really completely steamrolled by life. And that's just one of those things that would be a tragedy and debilitating. It's the whole lot. And his faith is being tested. And remember, he lived 4,000 years ago. So the revelation that we have of Jesus, even as Jeff was leading us in worship, talking about Jesus and himself, who himself faithful to us, Job could have touched that in a way, but as we know, the, the New Testament tells us of Jesus in the Old Testament that there's shadows of things to come, but the fullness is Christ. So in Job's experience in his trials and tribulations, it's like black and white TV. It's just not fully what we have that the gospel is delivered once to all for us, for the church. And we keep that in mind as we look at Job going through the issues of the soul, his heart, people's opinions of what's going on in his life, which brings us to chapter 14, because his three friends came to comfort him. They all had strong opinions about him and the events of his life. They all saw themselves as being the theological experts for their timeline. And they kept their peace for seven days. And now we're in that part of Job where there's a sequence where Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, they each speak. Round one, they do it again. Round two, and then there's a round three. So we left off last week finishing up round one of Job's response to Zophar. And so we pick it up with Job continuing his response to the attacks by Zophar, who basically said, you're in sin, and that's why these problems have happened to you in your life. And so he had already just said in chapter 13 that his friends were worthless physicians, and he said even if God slays him in verse 15 of chapter 13, that he would still trust in the Lord no matter what. And so that's where we left off. So he says in chapter 14, verse 1, man who is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and he fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. And do you open your eyes on such a one, on such a one, and bring me to judgment with yourself? Who can bring a clean thing out of unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Look away from, them, from him that he may rest till like a hired man he finishes his days." We've talked about this with Job. We're coming into the middle of his prayer. And the common denominator of his three friends is they talk about the Lord and they philosophize about the Lord, but they never talk to the Lord. Job talks theology. He talks philosophy, but he prays to the Lord. And that's the difference. We see that relationship with him. And so here he's in this prayer and he's pouring out his heart to the Lord. And he makes some very strong statements, which are affirmed by his peer group and by various other prophets and leaders in church history and Old Testament history as well. So he says that man is born of a woman, is a few days and full of trouble. 
If you recall, it's been a while since we're in Genesis, but back there in chapter 47, when Jacob was reunited with his son Joseph and the famine was going on and, and Jacob and the entire family, all the descendants, they came to Egypt to be delivered from the famine and he stood before Pharaoh and he met the most powerful man in the world and Pharaoh surely respected Jacob for who he was as a patriarch and the success that God had blessed him with. And when Jacob met Pharaoh, he said, few and evil have been my days. Jacob is, you know, he's, he's Israel, right? Jacob is Israel. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And he said to Pharaoh, when he's introduced to Pharaoh, like the thing that first comes out of his heart and on his mind is like, few and evil have been my days. And he did have a lot of hardships. If we look at his life, we know when he fled Israel, the first time Esau, his brother, the land of Canaan, his brother Esau wanted to kill him. We know that his father-in-law Laban took advantage of him and cheated him at least 10 times. We know that he fled for his life from Laban. He fled for his life from Esau and then was terrified of Esau, but was reconciled. Then he had problems with the people in the land. And then his son Joseph was taken from him and he, he was deceived by his other sons that he had been killed. So he had had a, I mean, comparatively speaking to to Job, he had, he, Jacob had some, he, his daughter was raped. You know, he had some, he had some really difficult things to work through in his own life. And he said, few and evil have been the days of my life. And the human experience, as we know, is, we've been saying this, but if you live 80 years, you're guaranteed testings, trials, tribulation, and tragedy. Because everyone you love and share the journey with is going to step in eternity before you, beside you, or after you. So they're going to be saying goodbye to you, when you left, or you're going to be saying goodbye to them when they leave, or you look at each other and you're going at the same time. That's how it works. And it's such a, death is such an equal factor on the human experience that we get about 100 years max, and then there we go. So it's a reality we all have to deal with, even in this room. And we get to, to the year 2110, well, none of us are there, not in this gathering. No one's going to be there in 2110. I just can't imagine. I mean, if you are, you might not know you are there, Okay. So that's how that works, right? We understand that. And then he said, he said, man comes forth like a flower and fades away. This makes us think of what Isaiah the prophet said some 1,300 years later in Isaiah 40. He said that the glory of, the, of man is like the flower in the field, and it, it grows, and it, it's, it's beautiful, but then it, it withers and it fades away. And we've all seen that, especially here in Southern California, where we have the super bloom, and February, March, we get these beautiful flowers in the mountains all the way up to the Bay Area. And they're just orange and gorgeous, particularly the Inland Empire and Lake Elsinore and whatnot. And then well, by June, it's brown. By August, we're all terrified of a Santa Ana and the fire hazard it represents because it just dries up. And that's the Lord uses that example through Isaiah the prophet, that that's what man is. So he's comparing us, our lives, like we have this moment, we're like super bloom in the beauty of youth or the strength of youth, and then we're just fading away. And you know, you can always tell our daughter Hannah's birthday is April 23rd. And no matter how big of a super bloom we have or how much rain we've had in El Nino or any other winter, I'm telling you, between April 10th and April 23rd, it all goes brown. You can drive Camp Pendleton stretch, in early April, hey, it's still green. There's flowers, the yellow, the poppies and all that. I'm telling you, by Hannah's birthday, it's brown every year. And that's how it is for us. We have this glory, and then it's gone. 
And we're, that's what he says, and it's true. Because he had his glory, and it all went in one day, right? So, of course, he's going to think that way. But many people don't think that way. They, they think they're going to be like a super bloom forever. No, you're not. You might think you're going to be something like this all this time, but whether you're an athlete or a singer or whatever, you're going to have a zenith, a high tide, ebb mark, and then it's not going to be the same. That's just the way it works for all humanity, and that's what he's saying. Then he says that our days are determined for us in verse 5 when they're determined the number of, since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you and you've appointed his limits so he cannot pass. That's a pretty powerful verse, right? If you harmonize that with Psalm 139, it says that God has fashioned the days for us when yet there was none of them. So truly our life is like an hourglass and you know the sand's going down at the bottom. We can see what's at the bottom, but we don't see what's at the top. Now, some of you younger people don't know what an hourglass is, but in my house, growing up in the 60s, my mom had an hourglass. It's a three-minute hourglass for eggs. She'd do it when the eggs, when the water started boiling, she'd flip the hourglass. When the sand was done and was three, the salt was down or whatever, in three minutes, the eggs were ready to come out of the boiling water. And so I have a very powerful visual for that. And that's what it's like. So all of us tonight, we can see the bottom of the hourglass, but we can't see the top. We know when we were born. We know our years, what we've lived so far. And we can figure the days of man are 70 by measure of strength, 80. Psalm 90, Moses said. So we know, like, okay, you can reverse engineer 80, like I do, March 21st, 2041. So that's when I'm 80, and I come backwards. I'm like, okay, I've got five years till 2029. I've got, you know, this till 2038, when I 50th wedding anniversary. And then, you know, here I am, and it's 2041. Hannah's 52. Zippy's 24. Uh, Louise was just born is 17. It's, it's not hard. It's not hard to scout the future. That's if I make 80. And you can do the same thing in your life. And it's not a bad idea to do the same thing because as we say with five years, you're going to arrive either way. So do you want to arrive, just stumble into five years down the road, 2029? Or do you want to arrive with vision, purpose, direction, and moving toward those things, the upper call of God in Christ Jesus? That's what you need to ask yourself. I review my five-year goals every day. Last year, the five-year goals were 2028, 20, now they're 2029. 20, That's what I do. I remind myself, I'm not stumbling through this day. I've got purpose and intention on this day. And I think it's a good idea for all of us is to value time. When Moses prayed about the days of man being 70 years or 80 years by measure of strength, he said, Lord, teach us to number our days. And it was Paul the apostle who said, we need to redeem the time for the days are evil. So... It's a, it's a good thing to be aware of time. And I, this phrase, he's appointed its limits so that he cannot pass it. That's sobering because he did let Hezekiah live longer. Remember Hezekiah asked for more years on his life and God gave him more years. But was that really the best thing in hindsight? Because Manasseh was born during that time and Manasseh was the worst king ever. So if he was hoping to have offspring to brag about, it didn't happen with Manasseh. Even though at the end of Manasseh's life, he got right with the Lord. His legacy was so destructive in his 50 years of being a king for Israel. If you've ever been somewhere where it's happening, it's a happening and you're part of it, and then everyone leaves and you're stuck there, it's kind of a scary thing. I remember when I was on the Pro Tour surfing, one time I was in Durban, uh, South Africa at the Pro Tour, and I chose to stay a little longer than the tour was there. So it's kind of like being a clown in the circus and the circus left town. And everyone left, and then I got sick, really sick. And I was in a hotel by myself, and all my friends were gone. And I can't tell you the anxiety I felt that I'd stayed somewhere too long. 
Like Hawaii's fun for two weeks. The third week, you're like, I think I got to get back to the mainland and get back to work. Go back to school or something. At least that's how I was. That's why they call it rock fever. If you go on a vacation for too long, you start to go crazy. And if you keep your Christmas lights up till February, people do think you're crazy. <laughs> you understand? Like, you, life, you have a window, we have a window, and then it's done. I don't want to be around when I'm 110. I don't want them to be 120. And I have no interest in living beyond that. That was for different human beings at a different time with the different atmospheric conditions before we see what man's done to this planet and even what God allowed in the, just the way things went in the post-flood world. So really, it's not about the quantity of time, but it's the quality of time and using it wisely from what we see from Job here. And he said, he said in verse 6, Look away from him that he may rest till like a hired man he finishes his day. I love that phrase because really... In the Bible, we see the greatest challenge is finishing strong, finishing well. And that's why we taught our children. That's why we encourage people. As a coach, I encourage people this way with the U.S. surf team and whatnot, Chilean surf team. Seal the fruit, like Paul said in Romans 15. Finish well. If you learn in your life early on to complete what you begin, you'll just keep building things in your life, chapters, chapters. And your life will become a memoir of completed things, of sealed fruit. So then when you get to the end of the journey, you're still doing things that God's called you to do. And you're still finishing, or as what Keith Randolph would say, finishing well. In my eight pillars of life, I had sealed the fruit for number eight for a long time. I go, it's just too much of a biblical term. I got to get a term that people don't know the Bible or any biblical phrases would get. And Keith and I were on the e-bikes. He turned to me and goes, finish well. Look at you, Keith Randolph. You always got stuff like that. Finish well. See, like a hired man, he finishes his day. The best worker at work, and those of you that have workers that work for you, is the one you see working until the clock is done, until the job is done. Finish well. So I look at this, this text and I say, that's who I want to be. I know that life has troubles, and I know my days are few. I know my glory will fade away because a lot of it already has. And I know that there's a line I can't pass and I'm not interested in passing it. So I know what really comes down to for all of us is not the quantity of life, but the quality of life. And like a hired man or a hired woman, we finish our day by doing the job right. And if you do the job right on February 1st, on Thursday, 2024, the odds are well and good. If that's the pattern of who you are, that's how you'll finish it on February 1st in 2068, if that's when you step into eternity, you younger people. It's the pattern of the urgency, the value, and the focus to fulfill the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Now we read on verse 7. For there is hope for a tree, if it is cut down, that it will sprout again and that its tender roots, shoots will not cease. Though its roots may grow old in the earth, and its stump may die in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. But man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last, and, and where is he? As water disappears from the sea, and, is, and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise. Till the heavens are no more, they will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. 
if a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my changes come. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands, for now you number my steps, but do not watch over my sin. Remember, Job is praying here, and it certainly sounds like the prayers of a person that's real with the Lord. Verse 17, my transgression is sealed up in a bag and you cover my iniquity. But as mountains fall and crumbles away, as a mountain, but as a mountain falls and crumbles away, and as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stones, as torrents wash away the soil of the earth, so you destroy the hope of men. You prevail forever against him, and he passes on. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor, and he doesn't know it. They are brought low, and he does not perceive it. But his flesh will be in pain over it, and his soul will mourn over it. So what Job is praying here, essentially, is he's saying to the Lord, I mean, there is no hope unless, obviously, God would give hope, and hope is going to be a topic before we're done tonight and get to the communion elements. But he asks this question, if a man dies, shall he live again? And, of course, we know Jesus answers that question. For when he came to the scene with Martha and Mary mourning over their brother Lazarus being dead, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, shall live forevermore. Do you believe this? And Martha said, yes, Lord, I do. And so Jesus really answers his question. And many times at memorial services, I will often share this verse. If a man dies, if a woman dies, will she live again? Jesus answered Job's question. When he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And of course, I think most of you know, no one else ever lived that said that, that we know of. There's no world religious leaders that said, I am the resurrection and the life. They said, I have a great philosophy, control your emotions, or whatever they said. But no one claimed to be the resurrection and the life, called forth dead people from the grave, and rose from the grave as a testimony to prove and validate everything they taught and said and did in their ministry to be God, Jesus. So for Job, it's black and white TV. If a man dies, will he live again? If a woman dies, will she live again? We know the answer, of course. Jesus is the answer. And in fact, later on in the book, he will answer it when he says this, I know that my Redeemer lives and he will walk the earth. So Job does, in fact, in a moment of faith, answer this question, prophetically speaking of Jesus coming, God himself, to do that. But here he says, Again, with testings, trials, tribulations, and tragedy, like, what's it all mean? And, and you know, like, like you're go- a man dies, he's in the grave, you don't bring him back because no one comes back, right? And so if his son does something great, would he even know? If his son's the worst ever, would he even know? And these are the things you think about when you're older. <laughs> when you get to 60s and 70s, you're like, you want your kids to be fruitful. You want your grandkids to be fruitful. That's how you think. You want your life to have meaning more than just existing, and you want that meaning to be passed on to your children if you have children. You want it passed on to your grandchildren if you have grandchildren, or you want, if you don't have your own children, you want it passed on to the people you love and future generations that you can see underneath you. We want our life to have meaning. It doesn't matter if we're saved or unsaved. That's why all these people with power, like Bill Gates and the Ford Foundation, that's why they have these foundations, because they want their life to mean more than just being rich and being self-centered. Because the older you get, the more you realize you can't take it with you. So you're looking for meaning. But we need no no farther than Jesus Christ being our Lord and Savior and letting him work in our life in the most practical, basic way every day. Job's in a tough spot, but he is sincere with the Lord, and that's a beautiful thing. Now we pick it up in chapter 15. We now officially begin round two of Job's friends telling him what's wrong with him. 
Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or by speech, by speeches with which he can do no good? Yes, you cast off fear and restrain prayer before God, for your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not I. Yes, your own lips testify against you. That's just, for me, just him saying this is, well, God rebukes his counsel later on. And I've been saying this, it's just better not to talk when you're going to talk like this. Because this is an opinion, and it's the wrong opinion, and he got reproved by the Lord for saying this stuff, and it was not true. So to be that hurtful with your words to someone that's your friend is just so inappropriate and so unnecessary. And it, it goes without saying, but still, it needs to be said there in verse 6. Verse 7, we'll read on as Eliphaz continues to accuse Job of just being wrong in his life. Are you the first man who was born, or were you made before the hills? Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not in us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, much older than your father. Are the consolations of God too small for you, and the words spoken gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? And what do your eyes wink at that you turn your spirit against God and let such words go out of your mouth? What is man that he could be pure, and he who was born of a woman that he could be righteous? If God puts no trust in his saints and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is abominable and filthy, who drinks iniquity like water? I will tell you, hear me. What I have seen, I will declare. So see, here's the basis of this guy's philosophy and theology. I will tell you, hear me. What I have seen, I will declare. It's based upon his limited intellect. Fallen and depraved men always, and women, have an opinion. And they often have a theological opinion. In other words, an opinion about God and how it would apply to someone else's life. This is human nature, and there's no stopping it. So it's really important when someone's putting something on you or speaking to you like this and this type of way and trying to be condescending in a religious way, especially younger people listen to me, you do not accept this. We're told to test all things and hold fast that which is of the Lord and that which is good. And I have had so many people in my journey talk to me like this at various times who just felt they were so superior to me in any given circumstance. And it's just, it, I don't want to be the person that does this. Like I, like I said Saturday, if people persecute you, don't let them persecute you because you're political. Let them persecute you because you're representation and identity with Jesus Christ. If you suffer, you really want to be sure you're suffering from, if society's doing things to you, you want to make sure it's because your faith in Jesus and your testimony for Jesus, because that is a reward for time and eternity. But suffering for folly or suffering for just opinions is never a quality thing. How foolish most human beings are going to look on the day of the Lord where we're told that each one of us will give an account for every idle word we speak. And in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. And even a fool is counted wise when he doesn't or she doesn't speak. I'm working on it right now at 62. One of my highest objectives is just talk less. Listen more. I mean, my mom used to tell me that when I was a teenager. Joe, talk less, listen more. Would we ever even arrive at such a thing? And when we talk, that as it says in Ephesians, that we're speaking words of edification and encouragement. A gentle word, a soft word spoken, how sweet that is in due season, like snow. You know, like these are the things that the Bible tells us. So we really want our words to 
reflect Jesus and truth and a spirit of humility as they're spoken, because God will honor that. But just to say, I'll tell you what I hear, what I've seen, and what I know in my life journey, which is, he's, which is what Eliphaz is doing here, that's where you get into trouble. And God doesn't honor it. And I, I've already got enough to give an account for on the day of the Lord. I'm not going to be punished for it. Jesus died on the cross for it. I'm still good. I don't want to see the game film. I mean, do you want, do you want to see your game film for things you said you shouldn't have said? No. I, I, man, if Coach Jesus pulls out the game film, I'll be like, oh, here we go. Um, I would just, I know it's under the blood, but I'm just not completely, because since we all give an account and things are tested by fire and wood, hay, and stubble is burned up, I got a feeling that's all the words I shouldn't have said. Verse 18, what wise men have told, not hiding anything received from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given, and no alien or foreigner passed among them? The wicked man writhers with the pain of his days, all of his days, and the number of years is hidden from the oppressor. Dreadful sounds are in his ear. In prosperity, the destroyer comes upon him. He does not believe that he will return from darkness, for a sword is waiting for him. He wanders about for bread, saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Trouble and anguish make him afraid. They overpower him like a king ready for battle, for he stretches out his hand against God and acts defiantly against the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with his strong embossed shield. Though he has covered his face with his fatness and made his waist heavy with fat, he dwells in desolate cities, in houses which no one inhabits, which are destined to become ruins. He will not be rich, nor will his wealth continue, nor will his possessions overspread the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry out his branches, and by the breath of his mouth he will go away. Let him not trust in futile things, deceiving himself, for futility will be his reward. It will be accomplished before his time, and his branch will not be green. He will shake off unripe grapes like a vine, and cast off his blossom like an olive tree. For the company of hypocrites will be barren, and a fire will consume the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble and bring forth futility. Their womb prepares deceit. Now, with Eliphaz here, I've said this before, there's times these guys say things that are technically, theologically true. And basically saying the wicked will be judged, this is what happens to them. And as you read this, if you say Job was saying this, you'd say, yeah, there's truth to it. But again, he's already in a place of condescending judgment against Job. And whatever truth is in his words, he's misapplying it in his personal opinion and limited perspective toward Job. And that's, again, we've seen this before and we'll see it again. Therein is his great mistake. Now Job responds to that. Chapter 16, verse 1. He says, Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are all of you. You all are. Shall words of wind have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's place, I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. But I would strengthen you with my mouth and the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. Though I speak, my grief is not relieved. If I remain silent, how am I eased? But now he has worn me out. You have made me desolate all my company. You've shriveled me up and it is a witness against me. My leanness rises up against me and bears witness to my face. He tears at me in his wrath and hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze at me, on me. They gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he has shattered me. 
He has taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. He has set me up for his target. His archers surround me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with the wound upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior. I have sewn sackcloth over my skin and laid my head in the dust. My face is flushed from weeping and my eyelid, eyelids is the shadow of death, although no violence is in my hand and my prayer is pure. That's a true statement. Verse 18, O earth, do not cover my blood and let my cry not have no resting place. Surely even now my witness is in heaven and my evidence is on high. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads with his neighbor. For when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. Now again, because of being in ministry and being in the front lines of ministering to people in the deepest despairs of life for 35 years, I've been exposed to people in this type of place, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, more so than most of you have, unless you've been serving the Lord in a similar capacity. It's just, you read something like this, it's like, gosh, it's so heavy, so distraught, but people get distraught. In fact, the next chapter that we'll read in a moment, he talks about his spirit being broken and his purpose being broken off. That is very serious. We'll get to that in a moment. But look what he says here in verse 12. Really good. Well, verse 2, he talks about if I were, I would be comforting you. And I think he would have been. But in verse 12, he says, I was at ease, but he has shattered me. He has shaken me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. I was at ease. This is our second application. I was at ease. <laughs> it is dangerous to be at ease at any juncture of life. It is very dangerous to be at ease. It goes back to what I was saying earlier about being on an endless vacation. It's, it's a dangerous place to be. That's why I've been saying to people, retirement is overrated. Just because you're slowing down doesn't mean you need to shut down. I mentioned my, I've mentioned my blind cousin, Katie, who lives in Florida. Back when my mom passed away, we did my mom's memorial in Cleveland during COVID, and, and I saw Katie, and we got on the subject of retirement, and she said she'd retired, but she came out of retirement because she, she said she was just going nuts, that she had to be doing something, and she worked with the blind throughout the Southeast, because she's blind, and, and she just said, I had to go back to work. I couldn't just wake up and have nothing to do. So instead of working like an eight-hour, nine-hour day, she's working a four-hour day, but she enjoyed it and continued to do what she was good at, and she's still doing it right now to this day there in Daytona, Florida, where she lives. And you see this with people. I always go back to Charles Schultz, the famous cartoonist who did Charlie Brown Peanuts. And even at the time, I had no reason to think this, but I remember reading that he... that. Peanuts was coming to a conclusion. He was retiring. There was going to be no more Charlie Brown. No, you know, because if you know the comics back in the 80s and 90s, I remember that. No more Charlie Brown. I was like, wow, that's crazy. And then when, he, when the last day of Charlie Brown was in the syndicated newspapers, like the San Diego Union, LA Times, Orange County Register, when the last Charlie Brown, fresh one, went out, he died the next day. In his mind, he was done. There was, he had no, and he was a Christian. He loved the Lord. Charles Schultz was known to be a very, well, who else but Linus would preach the gospel subtly to the entire nation with, you know, the, the Jesus message, right? But that got my attention. 
I always remember like, wow, like he did this and then that happened. And maybe he hung on just to finish it, right? Who really knows what was going on in his life? But we got to always have vision and purpose. My mom, before she passed away, she had reasons to live. She wanted to see Hannah teach the women's Christmas event. She wanted to see Cousin Jimmy graduate police academy. She wanted to spend Christmas with her family. She wanted to turn 85. And just because you want to do that doesn't mean you're going to do that. But if you don't want to do that, you won't do that if you're as sick as my mom was. The will to live is a huge factor as to whether or not you will live when you're older or dealing with terminal illness. But again, it doesn't guarantee you're going to live because sooner or later you're not. But we all know statistics and all these things have proven that this is a huge factor in cancer survivors is their will to live as opposed to not. If there's no will to live, people aren't going to survive cancer. If there is a will to live, their odds go up to survive it. And if they pray to a deity, all research has shown this, any type of God that they believe in, their chances go up even more so if, if they pray. Not even specifically in Jesus' name. If they pray, then the chances go up even more to survive terminal illnesses like cancer. So here, when he says I was at ease, but he shattered me. Now, Job was extremely successful. He had this beautiful family, 10 kids. He had multiple properties. He had all kinds of employees. His wealth was, he was the richest man in his region. He was the guy. He was that guy. People worked for him, extremely financially stable and successful. And he was a godly man. He was an amazing person. There was no one like him. He was the greatest man in his region on all fronts, spiritually, financially, emotionally, all, all that stuff. He was, he was the guy. But he said this, I was at ease and he shattered me. In self-reflection of what he was going through, losing his children and his, his good health and all this stuff, he realized that he was at ease. And even though he said earlier, the thing I feared the most came upon me, he would get up early and pray for his adult children and intercede for them like many of us do with our adult kids. He, he said that it was a fear that he had and it came to pass. And of course, the book teaches us that God's bigger than our worst fear. And we're told that perfect love casts out all fear. We covered that already. But he, in his own self-reflection, he said, I was at ease. Ease is a dangerous thing to, to slow it down and shut it down. In my own surfing career, I lived so intensely from the time I was 12 to 24 as a pro surfer. And all my dreams and all my goals, I was so driven, so driven, so driven to be a pro surfer before there was pro surfing, before there was a tour. I was so driven to be king of the pipeline and I just all these things. And I, I live with this just intensity driven for these goals. And after I accomplished winning the Pipe Masters, even though I had a new career running a pro surfing tour, what really happened was like, that restraint against evil, that motivation to go after this big dream, this big goal, it just came way down. The stoke meter, you surfers, the stoke meter went way down. And I've been living on the edge of my career being over at any given time because as a pro surfer, if you failed for more than four months, you were done. In the 70s and 80s, there's just there's no more money. My mom called me in 1980 in South Africa and said, Joe, we're out of money. If you don't win Brazil, your career's over. I went to Brazil and I won Brazil and I extended my career for another five years. It was a huge turning point in my career. But the urgency, right? The urgency, like, you know, like when the boss says, hey, get this done or we're out of business. It's like, you got to get it done. There's an urgency. But when you're at ease, when you see companies that don't adapt and adjust, then you have warehouse records and blockbuster video, right? Hollywood video. 
Jeffrey the giraffe, Toys R Us. If you're not constantly sharpening your vision and what you're doing with new vision, new perspective, new goals, new objectives, you're gonna, you're gonna lose your edge. And as a pro, after my pro career hit its peak, part of the Great Depression I went into in 85, 86 was I was at ease. I restrained myself from evil because my career and high dreams, but once I didn't have those same high dreams, I didn't care and I was at ease. And it put me in a straitjacket, if just for an hour. Still, though, it's an unpleasant experience to be talked to in a straitjacket, if even for an hour. I'm not recommending it, but it'll change your perspective on life. It will. People talk to you differently. People talk to you differently when you're in a straitjacket like this. And that's not a normal thing, and they don't talk to you like a normal person in that situation. In the book of Jeremiah, God, the pro- God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah about Moab. And he said this about Moab because he's pronouncing judgments on the surrounding regions when Nebuchadnezzar came and took the, the Jews away, the southern kingdom. But he said, Moab, Moab is at ease. And Moab has not been poured out from vessel to vessel. And the dregs have settled on Moab. So in that culture, they'd pour out the, the vessels like the wine and get the dregs out. And, and like the, the bottom of a coffee cup with, you know, when it's kind of the dregs or alcohol does the same thing, and, and you have to pour it out. And God said, because they weren't poured out from vessel to vessel, they weren't fresh, they weren't kept fresh, they weren't challenged, they just settled in their dregs. And by the way, can there be anything worse for a human being to be given over to themselves to settle in their dregs, in their sinful nature, in their corrupt thinking, in the lust of the flesh, in the lust of the eyes, in the pride of life? To be settled in your dregs and just sink into your dregs. No, we want to be in Christ and we want the Holy Spirit to pour us out from vessel to vessel, vessel to vessel, clearing out the dross, clearing out the dregs and keeping us fresh. Yeah, it's unsettling to go from vessel to vessel. Like, whoa, what's going on? I'm being poured out again. What's going on? Here we go again. But that's better than being settled in your dregs. Much better than being settled in your dregs. There in Luke chapter 12, Jesus told the story when the man came to him and said, tell my brother to give me my share of the inheritance. And I never really thought that much of that passage until I turned 60 and I realized how many people who are my age say, hey, Lord, tell my siblings to give me my share of the inheritance because siblings steal the share of the inheritance from other adult siblings. I've learned that at this point in life. He came to Jesus and said, tell him to give me my share of the inheritance. And Jesus said, who may be an arbitrator over you? That's what the court's for in Santa Ana. Go pay for arbitration. Let them figure it out with probate court. But I'll tell you this. I'm going to tell you a parable. And Jesus told the parable about the man who was wealthy. He said, oh, I'm doing so good. I'm, going to, I'm, I'm crushing it. I'm going to build barns and bigger barns. And I'm going to say to myself, soul, you've done well. Be at ease. And Jesus said, that man... That foolish man, tonight your soul will be required of you, and then who will have all your wealth, and what will be of you? See, even Jesus taught about the danger of building up enough of a financial wall of security that you feel that you could be at ease. We should never be at ease because of financial success or even good health, because we've all learned something. Your good health can be taken away from you in a day. Remember, we're praying for Jeff's sciatica nerve and how much pain he was in about three, four months ago. And having been through that myself, I'm like, oh, I just know. And I told him, I've kind of got something going right now that's uh, like a sciatica in the shoulder. He's like, no, 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 Jesus, no. See, like, that's, that's what you know. Like, see how quickly it can happen. 
you have good health, you can have a start surfing again, and you got sciatica going and down here, and like, <laughs> no, let's just get the next straight, right? It can all change in a day. Like Job, he had good health, and the next day he doesn't have good health. It can all change in a day. God wants us clinging tight to him, and he might need to pour us out in the dregs, because the one thing, the most dangerous thing to the believer, the life of a believer, is to be settled in our dregs. That is the most dangerous thing that can happen to us, is to be at ease and settle in our dregs. We must have purpose. We must have vision. We must have a plan. We must have goals. We must have godly routines for our own life, that we live in our life, that we share with our generation, that we inspire the next generation until we're gone. Our life needs to be significant, and it needs to be significant for eternity. For the person we see in the mirror, for the people of our timeline, baby boomers, Gen X, and then for the millennials and the Zs who are coming, it, my life has to have significance. We want significance with our job. We want significance in our place in the human experience. And we have significance when we're walking with the Lord and we're seeking him for vision and plans, direction, and the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Billy Graham's last crusade on the internet, more people than any other crusade in his 90s. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about going from glory to glory, and we never stop living. There's always a new adventure in faith that requires faith and steps of faith. We cannot settle in our dregs and be at ease. It's the worst thing possible for a believer. And all those foolish kings that we saw in Chronicles and Kings were foolish kings, and they made bad decisions in the end of their life because they settled in their dregs, and they were at ease. So, as Jeff prayed earlier, and as we're talking about, I'm not looking for testing, trials, tribulations, let alone tragedy, but those are things that pour us out from vessel to vessel that make us more dependent upon Christ and more ready for the day of the Lord and move us toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So that's, that's how it is. Chapter 17, Job has a bit more to add to all this. He said, uh, my spirit is broken, my days are extinguished, the grave is ready for me, are not mockers with me, and does not my eye dwell on their provocation? Now put down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is he who will shake hands with me? For you have hidden their hearts from understanding, therefore you will not exalt them. He who speaks flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children will fail. But he has made me a byword of the people, and I will become one in whose face men spit." My, ha my eye has also grown dim because of sorrow, and all my members are like shadows. Upright men are astonished at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the hypocrite. Yet the righteous will hold to his way, and he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. But please come back again, all of you, for I shall not find one wise man among you. My days are past, my purposes are broken, even the thoughts of my heart. They change the night into day. The light is near, they say, the face of darkness. If I wait for the grave as my house, if I make my bed in the darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, you are my mother and my sister, where then is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? Will they go down to the gates of the grave, to Shoal? Shall we have rest together in the dust? Again, with his limited perspective of what God's revelation to was him, to him, towards him in his generation, he's calling out for hope. Verse 1, he says, my spirit is broken. As I mentioned earlier, verse 11, my purposes are broken off. This is the worst place to be, a broken spirit and purposes broken off. Our spirit needs to be strong in Jesus Christ and in his word. And 
our purposes need to be clear, absolute, and resolved in Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't die on the cross, rise from the grave, ascend to the right hand of the Father, send the Spirit on the day of Pentecost for us to be completely broken of spirit, that we can't be healed of a broken spirit, and to be broken of purpose. Because as we have the gift of life, our life has purpose. And we have purpose this day. This is the day the Lord has made, and there is purpose. And therein is a reason to live every day until we're done. Consistency with the Lord every day, and vision and ideas that God gives us of how we can be used each day. For the one who seeks shall find, the one who knocks will be open, and the one who asks will get an answer. And I believe that right to the grave until you're 103, whatever you reach to, it's, it's applicable. And as for his hope, of course, we know that Jesus is our hope. It's a hope that's an anchor to the soul. So I just remind us tonight before we have communion that Jesus is our hope no matter what we're going through. And it's not the hope of men in men or women in women. It's the hope of God's people and their Savior and the Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this hope is an anchor to the soul. So come to the table tonight with joy and thanksgiving, right? Yes and amen.